Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Today, I am feeling like an individual. And I think I'm the kind of person that ever since I was a young child, I've had very strong individual kind of streaks where I just couldn't really mm-hmm. resist but be myself in a very loud, mm-hmm. performative kind of way. But I've been thinking Snap. a lot this week about the individual in relation to society, but also the individual in terms of like your own community and how that we can't really function on our own unless we do have our friends and loved ones and also a kind of wider community of people that we might mm-hmm. not know but people that we identify with and Mm. there's an artist who i have loved for many many years now who we have the great privilege of speaking to today all the way from los angeles and a number of years ago my friend emma reeves took me to the opening it was all very fancy and kind of like very glamorous because we were in los angeles at mocha and i went to catherine our guest's incredible show 700 neems road which was based on the interior spaces and homes of elizabeth taylor And it was a really incredible exhibition and it was actually the first kind of major solo exhibition and it was across, I think there were maybe three exhibitions in total on at the same time. And I I got to see them while I was in LA and it was just transformative, incredible experience I had. And then I went away and bought the book and sort of learned about Catherine's history, making the most incredible photographs of communities that you and me ourselves mm. kind of are part of on a wider level um, in the LGBTQ well, um, I mean, plus. in some ways, it's a family you make for yourself, isn't it? Yes. You have your biological family. And as Armistead Mulpin says, you have your logical family, which is the family that. that you bring close to you that allows you to really be who you are. And they support all your choices and all your all your persuasions and whatever you're into and you feel safe that you can express yourself with this like-minded people around you well just that i was about to say just that babe but i will say that just that babe (laughs) Um, yeah and the other day in margate we had a visit well just before lockdown happened we i think it was like february we had a visit from a lovely couple from la rodney and tacker and they run a gallery called nona cahill gallery in los angeles and i 
found out that Rodney has a son with Catherine and I immediately said we have to interview Catherine it was like my first thing wow. when I found out because I was such a big fan so I'm so glad this has finally happened so we would like to welcome to talk art Catherine, Catherine Opie, Opie. Uh-huh. thanks you guys for such a great introduction and it's nice to be talking across the pond it's amazing as to talk to you and it's <laughs> everybody we spoke to about you Catherine has said it's Kathy along the along the whole journey of knowing your work it's Kathy Opie it feels yeah. like you come across as a very very um shorthand open friendly person no I, I haven't had any bad energy everything's been so positive <laughs> about you Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. But yeah, I am Kathy. But a lot of times people want to match that with the last name Opie, where they spell it C-A-T-H-I-E. I have always been Kathy with a Y. So I'm setting the record straight on that because it's Love just that. like, I know it looks good aesthetically with Opie to have the I-E, but nah, uh-huh. I'm Kathy with a Y. We've got it. It's official now. Everybody listening. It's official. It's <laughs> Rob was just mentioning Rodney then, and the first thing that came to my mind from doing the research is I, I pictured a Russell Wright teacup and a turkey baster when he oh, said yeah, that. Oh, yeah, there name. is. It's true. It's true. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. It's been talked about in the in, – in actually, I've interviewed, and uh, yeah. I, was, I was living in New York. I had moved from L.A., and I was living in New York teaching at Yale and moved to the whole kind of New York City art community, which is very different than the L.A. art community. And the only kind of really great guy that I knew was the director of the gallery I showed at, um, at uh, Jay Gorney. And Rodney had been his uh, director for years. And he was a fellow Midwestern guy. And I had known him for 10 years. And I just kind of invited him out to dinner and then blew his mind by saying, Hey, can I have your sperm? I want to have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Did, did he take a lot of persuading or was he like, sure? You know what? He took about three weeks to think about it. He took it very seriously and he had a lot of questions and it was a really, really big ask as it would be from anybody because I was asking for him to be acknowledged as a biological father, but then not having any fiscal kind of attachment or legal attachment to that child. So that's a really, mm-hmm. really big ask. And uh, I'll have to say that uh, he said yes, which I'm really grateful for. And I did get pregnant in New York. And then I was headhunted back to L.A. by UCLA to teach from Yale. And they offered me tenure, and Yale did a counteroffer. And so I moved back to L.A. with Rodney going like, but you're pregnant <laughs> with my child. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Wow, and you went in straight into a teaching post. I did. I, w- I moved back home eight months pregnant, back to L.A., and I couldn't oh. take a leave of absence because it was my first quarter teaching. So I basically taught right up to the time that I went into the delivery room, and then I took a few weeks off, and then spring break happened, and then I went back to teaching in April. So Oliver was born in February, and I went back to full-time teaching as well. Had completed a show at the Walker of Ice Houses at that point in time in Skyways. So I worked all the way constantly through my pregnancy and up to the point that I had him. Wow. And, and then Rodney moved out when um, Oliver was three months old to Los Angeles. 
And my partner, Julie, who was finishing teaching at Wash U in St. Louis, moved out when he was three months, too. So then all of a sudden, I had this immediate family. It was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it was me and the baby, and now you guys are here. <laughs> wow. Well, what's yeah, amazing about magical. this story, Kathy, is the fact that one one of your most iconic works uh, is there's there's I'd say it's a triptych, but they were done over that there was like a decade in between the third one. But there were self portraits that you made, and one of them was yeah. self portrait cutting, and one of them self portrait pervert. And the self portrait yeah. cutting is you from behind, and there is you've you've had kind of um, with like pierced into your back uh, like a childlike drawing of two women holding hands with a with a, a house in the background and a, a tree and at that point it felt like you were longing for this family that you never felt this kind of queer dream was possible um to have this nuclear family and then cut to now we're talking to you and it, you've you've done all that and, and i think that's such a wonderful journey right yeah from the cutting to cut to exactly <laughs> no um it was it was always a dream i mean i went around as a kid total tomboy and saying like i want to have 12 kids and i always was a babysitter and i was always a camp counselor i was a camp counselor probably longer than anybody should be a camp counselor um (laughs) i almost went into it full time but art won out what no what is that what's a camp counselor we don't have that oh Yeah, I know a lot of you guys send your kids to America for the American uh, overnight camp experience. So you basically, your kids go to a camp where they get to swim, boat, uh, do archery, you know, do arts and crafts. Mm -hmm. And you go away some, you know, anywhere between all summer, three months to one week is the earliest you can go. Uh, And you, the kids go and they're away and they, have a cabin of kids their age and they do outdoor things and they hike and they ride horses and it's a whole oh, thing. Nice. Camp. Like a coming of age thing. And you, and you were a counselor there. So you taught all these. All yeah. All I, yeah. I, I was started being a camp counselor at the age of 15 and I, I stayed a camp counselor until 21. Wow. So was that, was wow. that quite a kind of a natural kind of calling for you to want to teach and educate and sort of be there on an emotional level for, for people? Mm. Yeah. For kids, especially. Yeah. For people. Yeah. I yeah. really, really love young people and mm. I'm amazed by uh, all of their different experiences and what it means to become an individual and what it means to be part of community and how to be empathetic as a human being and, but anyway, I, I, I do believe that part of um, learning about humanity and others and the difference of others uh, is mm-hmm. so much about a community approach to um, teaching people how to be more humanistic. And I would say that my artwork reflects that idea of differences and coming together in all these different ways as well. But that's mm-hmm. like a really core part of me as a person is how do we get to be a better humanity? How do we get to actually care for others in a really positive way? Well, that, you I know, mean, empathy runs through your work. Yeah. That's, that feels like the vein of all of your practice. Yeah, it really does. I mean, it's a really huge component. Like my motto in life is give more than you take. Mm, wow. I like that. I like that. So when you were camp counselor at 15, 
going back to your childhood then, at 14, you'd, you already had a dark room. At nine, you'd been given a camera. So at 15, you were... I mean, you, I, I think I've read that you, you did your first selfie, your first self-portrait when you were nine. Yeah, so during this nine, time, yeah. you were cultivating... You were cultivating this, the photographer in you at, at like this age. Well, yeah, and actually the camp was really great where they allowed me to take over a space in the big, huge um, hall where you did like plays and musicals. And there was like this little cubby area and they allowed me to build out a dark room to teach kids <sighs> photography at camp as well. And then I became wow. the official photographer for Camp Marston in, in California. I did all these amazing photographs that they ended up using in all their promotional material for years. So at 15, wow. I was also wow. like, and up to a few years ago, I like looked online and I was like, oh my God, that's my picture from 1976 and they're still using wow. it. Oh my god! And these and these pictures you were taking at that age. Do you oh, ever oh, yeah. show them, or do you reference them yourself? Do you look back at them and think, do you still have them? You know, I have all my negatives. I was also the high school drama photographer, where I photographed all the plays. Really? And it was one of the ways that I could make friends. Is I actually used my camera, and I probably still do use my camera to basically, uh, you know, create a larger community for myself. And I've always kind of done that since I was a kid. And so I would go and I'd go home and print in my darkroom all the photographs from that play that night. And then I'd bring them back and I'd give them away to all the actors on campus. And then over the time, they all became my friends and I had a, a social group. And so photography has always been a, a, a really interesting opening for me to explore how to actually grow a community and give back to a community. Mm -hmm. Didn't you also gift your photographs to your crushes? <laughs> yes, to Suri, who lives in England. <laughs> Hi, Suri Flack, if you're listening to this, you were my first high school crush. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> She's got photographs that you did of her back in the day that you gave to her as gifts. That's so oh, cool. yeah. I was so madly in love with her. I actually like went to Christian camp because I was so in love with her. Really? <laughs> Why Christian camp? What, like to heal <laughs> yes. yourself, Christian camp? Or because she went No, there. Oh. not at all. Because she was, she was, uh, yeah, she, that was her, it was her calling of uh, Christianity. And I mm. grew up uh, agnostic and. Uh, and I was one of the few people, I think, throughout the 60s who people would say, well, what's your religious affiliation? And I would be like, uh, none. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Sir, though, right? but, but, but Suri was a Christian, and so there was, uh, there was also Christian camps that people went to to learn more about mm. God. And I followed her on a retreat because I was madly in love with her. Oh that's God, the that's best so way romantic. to find God, isn't it? Through, <laughs> 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 that's the most genuine route into, into a religion, definitely. Exactly. Oh, wow. If people only understood that in order to be closer to God, you become a homosexual, then it would be like just a different world, right? It would be an amazing, it would. It'd be an amazing world. <laughs> the best. Transformative, yeah. Um, so talking about back, back then, your first camera, do you still have that first camera? And were, and were you also uh, quite into the tech side of it? Like the kind of geeky, like you were talking about having your own dark room, that kind of fills me with fear. But like, was that something mm. that you were, were, were enjoying doing? Yeah, I loved it. I loved the solitude of it. I loved, 
I actually had my grandfather's darkroom trays because he had a darkroom in his basement in Ohio where I grew up. And so I remember my oh, grandpa wow. taking me into the darkroom. And then when he stopped doing photography, um, I inherited all of his first darkroom equipment uh, in a box that he had sent me to California because at that point I was living in California. And there were these beautiful old enamel trays and I ate through them immediately with a powerful fixer and stuff. But yeah, I've always been really interested in the technical aspect of the medium. And unfortunately, I would have to say that even though now most of it is digital, I still think about photography completely from an analog place. Like when I'm talking to my assistant about what I want done to a print, I use analog language to her to be able to do the digital. I didn't catch up digitally. I wasn't one of the photographers in the 90s that after doing all of this extensive large format and really technical stuff, I wasn't able to have the time because of teaching and everything. And I didn't need to teach digital because there's other people that I could hire to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a certain lag for me at this point on a technical level about photography, but there's not a lag in relationship to how an image operates in the world. Yeah. Like that's what I'm most interested in. I was never interested in manipulating my images. I was interested in bearing witness to the world and I can still do that with the equipment that is that I shoot with now as I use it just like film cameras right and you and you have one assistant don't you that's someone you've worked with for a while yeah Heather has been working with me for eight years now and she's a full-time assistant and she runs the entire studio flawlessly and if she were to ever go away I don't know what I'd really do it'd be a problem <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where yeah, are anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it must be quite a precious relationship that as well, because I guess, you know, take, I imagine taking pictures is such a personal um, sort of process, you know, between you and the sitter. So you almost don't, do you, do you shoot with, with many other people around or is it always just you and no, the sitter? No, it was always alone. In fact, to have an assistant come into a portrait session for me was hard to let that in because you it for me it's really about the communication between who I'm taking a portrait of and the camera and often that is very silent like I'm the opposite of say a photographer like Ryan McGinley who will blast mm -hmm. music and have everybody dance around I'm the person whose studio is silent and I'm very quietly telling them how to pose or moving their hands and it's like very fast, which is mm -hmm. unusual for portrait photographers, but it's mm -hmm. also a very silent um, meditative exchange. I really view it as this shared moment that's a meditated moment between us. And wow. th there is such a stillness in some of the photography as well, like that portrait which is coming to mind the way you just described it there, actually, um, of Mary in 2012. Um, mm -hmm. where she sat on this kind of red leather chair with her hand, you know, poised. Yeah, in, the in her, in, you know, her hand poised right by her necklace. Yeah. Yes. No, I, I like the, I, I like the silence in images because the silence allows you to linger a little bit more. And I think that my biggest question actually with the kind of presence of digital photography and Photoshop 
is what does it mean to actually be able to still stare? What does it mean not to be fully manipulated as a viewer into an emotional response, but allow the kind of, um, I don't know, the multitude of expressions that happen from a human being to another human being just to, you're allowed to just sit with it. What is it to just sit with something? and not be forced into a, a, an emotion that you're, uh, or a reaction. Mm-hmm. Because certainly some of my other images are reactionary. One would say that the self-portraits are utterly reactionary and performative. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I'm more interested in the quietness right now, and maybe that's because I'm approaching my 60th birthday. Um, right. That I'm not, I'm not the same kind of, I mean, I'm still radical, but I'm not the same kind of radical that I was, say, in my in my early 30s and late 20s during an AIDS epidemic. It's different the way that as you get older, you respond to the world in a different way. Mm-hmm. So do you find them works that you made, like this, the self-portraits of uh, the cutting and the pervert, do you, do you find them hard now to to look at or to, like, Look back on self-portrait. Yeah, yeah. Self-portrait cutting has never been hard for me. Self-portrait pervert from the moment I made it, and and it, I knew that it was an image that it was really important for me to make for myself. Um, but at that point, I wasn't really well known in the art world. And the first place that that image ever showed was the 1995 Whitney Biennial. So it never shown any other place except for the Whitney Museum of American Art. And that was the first, and it was big for me at that age to have that kind of visibility. And mm-hmm. um, super important piece, but not one that I ever felt the need to uh, live with. Uh, self-portrait cutting on my back. In fact, the last, I sold the last AP of Pervert to the Guggenheim because I wanted them to have all three, and they're the only museum that Amazing. has all three self-portraits. Wow. And um, and because I also didn't necessarily need to leave it to my family, you know? It's just like this was me at this age and this time in my life, and mm. it's not the whole sum of me as a person. And I think that's why I switched to making landscapes and switched my work up too, mm. was it's like, okay, what is like this idea of identity politics that then you only get to exist within that prism? And Got there it. are so many more things to me than just that singular prism of identity politics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Even though it's utterly important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, like the works, because for the past sort of 10 years or so, there's a series of, of works you've made, including the Yosemite um, kind of landscape. Fort waterfalls uh, in, and stuff. In, yeah, waterfalls and also kind of green, you know, beautiful out of focus kind of um, still... Uh, landscape moments and also pictures of the sea which I really resonate with me because I've been living for the last year and a half by the sea in England and there's something about what you said about how that photoshop generation and how maybe you can be manipulated by changing an image digitally but what I've begun to realize is that nature can actually manipulate you in a way like it can make you feel different emotions so strongly and it's all completely natural so every day i do a walk on the seafront and it literally is the same um you know route i take every day but it's never the same because it constantly changes it's never the same exactly yeah and i love that and i feel that in your in your photos like there's a Mm. similar kind of energy with the sunsets that you've taken 
Yeah, and it's also about how to debunk the idea of cliche or iconic, right? It's like right. we all tell our beginning photo students, no, 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 you can't make a sunset photograph or you can't make a sunrise photograph because it's a cliche. Yeah. But in my mind, the cliche should be played with. It should be poked at. It should be, it should be allowed and it should be reimagined. Like that's what we do as artists to a certain extent is we open up other ways to think about things. Like we're mm-hmm. portals to a certain extent. And I really love uh, that idea, even you, you know, the recognizing that it's never the same. And yet, but in photography, in that specific moment, it's always then the same because that's what's captured. And so I love the idea that everything changes around us. And that's what I've learned the most about kind of my love of photography is its relationship to history building. And then when you build those histories through various bodies of work that you've spent your whole life dedicated to this one thing, that it reminds you of so many things in relationship to what it is uh, in terms of humanity and bearing witness and that you can calm somebody down through a landscape and then you can actually bring in a whole other intellectual response through a different gesture that you do with your camera is utterly fascinating to me. Mm. Mm. Wow. But you're talking talk about capturing nature as well. I, I find that with, with the photographs you take of architecture, of, of like mm. debunking the myth of the American dream, uh, Americana, but there's no people about, and there's something about that which has a dystopian feel that it almost feels like... Uh, for, for nature, it's business as usual. If the humans weren't here, the nature would just, it would decay. The only way, the only reason this is here is because there's human presence. And the nature in them ones, for me, feels really like, like ominous, like nature is just around the corner, just going to take over again. Yeah, and it will. I mean, we were able to actually give the earth a little bit of breathing room from this unfortunate COVID, but for yeah. Mother Nature, she didn't mind the break. You know, what, 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 what did I read the other day in the paper? Um, like there's only, in the, in the northwest up in, in Vancouver area, there's only 72, um, you know, whales living uh, in terms of killer whales. And uh, there were 13 born this year. And maybe that's because the shipping lanes have shut down. Same thing with our mountain lions here in California, which are on the edge of extinction, um, Mm -hmm. the mountain lion, and uh, over 13 cubs were born this year. And maybe that's because there weren't as many hikers. Maybe that's because there wasn't as much, like, traffic hitting them on the freeway, which happens, you know. So Mother Nature really doesn't mind the breathe. And I think that's one of the reasons why I started abstracting landscapes and not only talk about the relationship to abstraction and that, especially within photography through the late 90s and 2000s, that photographers were going to a language of abstraction in similar ways that painters did. But mine were abstracting national parks, like iconic landscape that everybody knows. But by simply racking the focus of the lens, do we create a pause? And what is a pause for us at this point? And I feel like we've been set on a huge human pause with COVID. And so we have to think about the other implications of what that pause is and what it means 
in all, in all these different ramifications from what it can do from mountain lions and killer whales being born to just having a little bit cleaner water for the moment. Maybe we need to mm. really pay attention to that. And what does it mean for your work? What does COVID, this current climate, and what does this <laughs> feeling do to, do to you as an artist? Well, it has been very fascinating to have so much time with my family. And we were in the process of dropping Oliver off at college, and we were going to get in our Subaru and drop him off. And I have, the, have since March of not being able to make work really. No, nobody's coming to sit for portraits. There's, I put an exhibition up at Regan Projects in February, and now the exhibition is at Lehman Mobbin in New York. Uh, without me going there and having an opening and doing the normal things artists do. But I'm happy yeah. that people get to see the work. Um, this is rhetorical so landscapes, right? That's yeah, exactly, rhetorical yeah. landscapes. Mm. And so then I started thinking, like, well, like I really, like, all this stuff that's happening in this country, I mean, we are under mass protests. We are under all of mm. these things that I normally would go bear witness to. And I did start going to the uh, BLM protests, Black Lives Matter protests in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. And uh, I did start photographing these protests. And, and then I, you know, and, and I'm pretty much of an avid news person. Like I'm somebody who likes the news and I'm somebody who started getting really jealous over photojournalists. I was like, gosh, I... God, I'm so grateful for photojournalists right now. They're showing us a world at a time where we're not supposed to leave our houses. Like, this is fantastic. Mm. Mm. And so, on the week before we were supposed to drive Oliver in the Subaru to Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, I bought an RV. And my wife said, you what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm buying an RV. I said, we're going to take Oliver to school in an RV and then I'm going to go What is exactly can, is an RV, Kathy, for us in oh, the UK, a, for people that don't know? It is a recreational vehicle that you can sleep, eat, and, and go to the bathroom in. So we would call yes. that a caravan here. That's what or we call it. a camper van, yeah. Camper van. Right, so we, we call it a recreational vehicle, and we shorten right. it to an RV. Uh-huh. And so I bought a 25-foot RV, and oh, I, said, I said to Julie, like, this is going to be my studio. I'm going to go bear witness. And so we did the family trip to Tulane, and we dropped our son off at college, and he's there living in a dorm and doing classes in person. And he gets to have that experience after having his senior year shut down on him where he didn't even have a graduation. Yeah. And... Um, and so then we went on, Julie and I went on, and she could have gotten on a plane at any time. That was our deal, that she didn't have to do the journey with me, but we spent uh, <laughs> three and a half. We went, did three and a half weeks where I mapped out all the Confederate monuments, not all of them because there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, but I, mm -hmm. I did kind of a traversing around the country of photographing monuments that exist, monuments that have been removed, memorials like the peace and justice memorial in montgomery alabama mm -hmm. uh, went to the robert e lee uh, in richmond yep. virginia that has become an activist site to then moving on to charlottesville where the white supremacists marched and photographed that as a place and a landscape mm -hmm. and then went to brianna taylor's memorial 
So I mapped out a whole journey through the South to just do a little bearing witness that has as much to do with the politic of landscape at this moment in time in American history and just reflecting on that. And these and would be I, without, yeah. these wouldn't have people in, right? These would be as. No, some have people in them. I mean, it oh, was really? great. Like, I got to Duke University, right, in, in North Carolina. And Duke University inside the chapel had a, had a monument to a Confederate leader that has since mm. been removed. And this is the beautiful thing about bearing witness. Like, you don't know what you're going to get, right? Like, you get to a place yeah. and you have a camera and you. You get enthralled. So just by chance, that moment that I get to do to the chapel where a security guard let me drive my RV right up to the, the roadway of the chapel to photograph, there was a young African-American woman who had just graduated with her daughter with a professional photographer with strobes on the porch with her daughter holding a sign, you did it, mom. So I had this whole amazing moment of achievement at a time of racial injustice within this country as as uh, as where that moment in time of me trying to photograph the spot uh, where this confederate monument once was became a whole different story and that's you don't you don't get that unless you go out and you just explore and seek and I've always appreciated those surprises about that and how it reflects on what you make as a as an image maker. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good um I mean obviously outside of COVID rules, but it's a great message to remember, I think, as an artist, is that yes, you might be able to make things at your kitchen table or by being kind of intimate and private, but it's also good to go out there and experience the world and I think for a photographer who reflects on the world, it's really, COVID's been, uh, was debilitating for me at first. And also, I, I have to be honest to the, to the people who are listening, I also question what it means for me to be an almost 60-year-old white woman who has spent my life photographing, and why is my voice even still important? I mean, definitely, those, those are those thoughts that go through my head. It's like, why should I be photographing Confederate monuments? Like, is this even my place to do this? Like, is my voice even valid right now in terms of what's happening in this country with, with systemic racism that has just increased under this leadership? But what, or lack of leadership, yeah, I, I mean, I think we all, everyone's feeling their, their place and everything, but to say, Kathy, what you, what you do is that you the power you have is to represent uh, people that are overwhelmingly absent in mainstream media, and that you have mm-hmm. done that throughout. People that need to be important because a lot, a lot of the artists we speak to are like, if you put these people on a gallery wall, and people cannot avoid the fact that they exist. You are giving, yeah. bearing witness to an existence that is marginalised, sometimes within the margins. And yeah, that, has yeah, been, yeah, yeah. that has been the people that you've sourced out and that is why your work has been so important and why you're a trailblazer. And you saying like, you know, you're wondering now what is your place, but you're, what you've done is, you know, like in the way that... So going back to the person that inspired you was Lewis Hine Heaney, who yeah, witnessed, yeah. who bared witness to these to child 
uh, to these uh, immigrants who were then in child slave labour, basically, child labour. Yeah, and he, in yeah. his photographs changed the law of child labour. And what you've done is you've, you've bared witness to this, this existence of these people and you've, by representing them, you, things have changed. You've, you've managed... Well, these you people are now voice. known. Yeah, you yeah. give voice. And, and that's the thing. You amplify. Yeah. yeah, you amplify and you give voice. So, you know, it, I'm, I, I think it's important for every artist to ask really difficult questions about what their work means at any given point in time. And yes. I, I just think it's important to ask those questions. But I don't think it's ever going... Those questions will ever shut me down completely as an artist of what my natural yeah. desire is to kind of make images of or think about what's, what's important to look at because it's just, quite frankly, part of my brain and the way that I process information. As mm -hmm. I have to process information through, you know, like really thinking about it on my own level and what it means to make images of it. And, uh, and you know, it's a passion. It's another passion. So one should never oh, yeah. shut down their passion. But I think it's important yeah. for artists to ask a lot of incredibly important hard questions right as well yeah definitely. does it have any resonance with um uh, covid especially with uh, the aids crisis when uh, a lot of people in our community uh historically just were completely ignored by the government and yeah. underrepresented does the current climate now is it is it scary how similar it feels well it's similar in a weirdly different way because in a certain way, the people that have always held the power in relationship to ideas of white power, let's say, in terms of an American history, are actually um, like kind of denying the scientists as well, but they did it in a very different way because it was based on homophobia and mm. not and the other being invisible where we're like the kind of supremacy and white nationalism that we're seeing in this country right now has always been kind of visible in relationship to who holds power, but mm -hmm. the voice given to it in the singularity of that voice is just extremely frightening. I mean, we're very worried that we will have a civil war here. We really yeah. are. We really think that if a good number of people really feel that if Trump loses to Biden, that Trump isn't going to go peacefully. No, he's even said uh, that. But, <laughs> but we also really, really believe uh, that that the military is do that. You know, the generals will not allow him to um, have a coup in any kind of way. There won't be a military coup, so to speak, as we've mm -hmm. seen with mm -hmm. democracy and other other countries uh, crash mm -hmm. down, that it won't mm -hmm. be supported by our own military. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a it's going to be an interesting. What are we now? Sixty days almost. Sixty days from yeah. the election. I know it's getting closer and closer, and just mm -hmm. it's getting closer yeah. and closer. It's amazing yeah. what you've so, done with, with your your latest show. You were talking about this up that you oh, you've made these an, animated landscapes. collages, which yeah. yes, rhetorical landscapes. There's there's two parts of it where you have. You've made these animated collages, which we can get to, but the, the one that I, I love is, again, going back to nature, but you photographed swamps, which have yeah. this, um, the, the rhetoric of the American government, which is drain the swamp, yeah. and 
you've you've then got these images of these really beautiful swamps, which are incredibly peaceful, and they're they're taken in areas like Florida, which is heavily Republican. So you have this you've absolutely eschewed this um, rhetoric and made it beautiful, <laughs> which I think is so. Yeah. Clever. It's so genius. Same, same, same with my queer friends in the 90s. They were all too pretty. They were all beautiful human beings. You know, it's just like <laughs> people and places are, are, you know, to weaponize. Do I, the idea of to weaponize a swamp and drain the swamp and, um, yeah. you know, further problematic with the fact that swamps actually are never going to be drained. They're going to disappear because they will all be underwater because of global warming. And so that's the other thing is photography preserves things. Like I was saying earlier, they, you know, it's the history. So these beautiful, peaceful, quiet images of swamps that you can just float away in, in your mind um, are also completely vulnerable landscapes that will Mm. be consumed as the waters rise. And then the, the idea of having something like the language of the swamp and the image of this beautiful, pristine place then with the cacophony of what enters us all the time, which is just massive, um, you know, uh, dialogue around uh, politics and people and to basically base these kind of uh, animated collages that very much come from your side of the pond and my growing up with Monty Python. Yeah. Um, oh right, yeah. Terry Gilliam, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Terry Gilliam, and uh, it was a really great way to use another thing. Also, that will go away is one day we won't have magazines to cut out. One day right. we won't have newspapers to cut out. So both of these things are kind of disappearing within a digital age. But at the and same time, you collect time, images from magazines and newspapers, don't you? Like political images, and then you you satirize them in these um, animations. Yeah, yeah. I do. I satirize yeah. them. They're very satirical. Thank you for using that uh-huh. word. <laughs> uh-huh. No, I mean, besides rhetorical, they're satirical, very much so. I mean, at one uh-huh. point, I make Trump into a drag queen, you know, so. Perfect. Perfect. Um, and, oh, no, and actually, Pence. no, I think that's too much of an offer. I don't want him to be a drag queen. I don't want him to be a, I love drag queens. I don't want him to be a drag queen. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. I don't want him to be either. I want him to just go away. But it's just like, yeah. okay, look, uh, like you're just too much. It's just too much. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, I did one. I did it on immigration, one on the rising waters. Um, they all deal with different headlines that have been happening um, you know, uh, the last body of work was the modernist before rhetorical landscapes. And that dealt with uh, the idea of burning down the most iconic modernist houses in L.A., which is a film I made in, in uh, conversation with uh, Chris Marker's La Jete. And that's mm-hmm. the other aspect of being an artist is I think that we're always in conversation with history besides trying to make a different history and, and create bodies of work that can hold up. Um, there, yeah. there's, there's a beauty to, uh, to responding to other artists and having conversations with them. So that was my yeah. conversation with Chris Marker because his fear was nuclear war. And my right. fear is the relationship to nostalgia that we hold because under Trump, he would like America to go back to kind of the fifties, I think, you know? Yeah. And so what does that nostalgia really hold for us? 
yeah. um, mm. and how do we disrupt it? And if, if, if modernism was supposed to be the utopic dream and we haven't achieved utopia, then what mm. does it mean for an artist who can't afford to live in LA, who lives in a single room, begin to burn down these iconic modernist houses that was supposed to provide affordable housing. And now they're just rarefied treasure boxes. Mm-hmm. So always lots of questions. And that was like the, that is why rhetorical landscapes got made was if I hadn't made the modernist because the character throughout the film makes a huge collage out of LA times articles of not only their own burning down of the modernist houses, but also uh, other fires uh, in California. So the news in that piece is all is both fake and real news before fake news became a thing. Mm-hmm. We're now in the post-truth so, era, aren't we? Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah. So crazy. <laughs> so you were talking about other artists. Oh, go on, Rob. Sorry, for those who haven't seen the show in New York, um, it's coming to a close actually quite soon isn't it september the end of september i think but um there's one of these digital uh kind of video collages which um has uh, what what seems like a pile of guns um with yeah, the american the guns flag falling, raining and, guns yeah yeah and there was something so powerful about that image it just i couldn't stop looking at it and just the kind of the way that there's no you know figures in it so you don't see anyone holding the gun you Mm. just see this kind of heavy metal of the actual physical object and the kind of weight of that but also the patheticness of it all somehow and i don't know i just i'm really struck me that piece can you speak well it's so hard the guns the proliferation of guns and living in a country that is, uh, it could be, you know, a militia. Militias have developed now under this presidency that are supported by the president. And mm-hmm. to have people come out and pick up trucks with guns and, you know, it's, it's, there, it's not that far away from what it looks like in terms of the Taliban, you know, or other kind of yeah. movements within a, in, in a country where they disagree with um, the support of democracy. Um, so, uh, the guns, you know, in terms of just, um, even watching under the Obama administration, uh, with, with not being able to put gun laws in place after kindergartners get massively shot is just still a place of utter shock and dismay for me. And, uh, I don't like guns. I don't own a gun. 
I, I have shot a gun because, you know, when I grew up in Ohio and you go out pheasant hunting when you're a kid in the 60s, you know, that's what you do. You go out hunting with your dad. And, uh, uh, but it's never been uh, anything that I've felt very good about in terms of living in this country. It, you know, I've, I lived in West Adams where I had seven homicides on my street of gang homicides within a, a 12 year period of time. And that's like literally me watching somebody hold towels to um, somebody's head that has been blown out you know, from a fellow oh gang member. God. And so the, the incredible amount of violence to live in a, a city like Los Angeles through my lifetime, as well as just America as a country in relationship to guns is just thoroughly um, uh, kind of, a, it, it makes you want to knock your head against a brick wall. It's just like, I don't mm. get it. It's just like, it's pretty clear what we need to do here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's tough. It's a tough one. So I again that guns falling into a pile. It, it's yeah. like you know the animator Sam. I had Sam Gurry uh, was my animator who was a recent grad student from CalArts who did all the animations for me. I brought her into the studio for a seven month period of time where we worked together on these. But she was able to get such a great feeling of weight to the guns as they hit the pile and how they spun and how the movement of them is is incredible because all the pieces, there is no sound, but you don't need the sound. You imagine it because of the way that it's animated. And it's a really an incredibly moving piece, I think. Mm. It is. Well, let's talk about some artists that are your big influences. You talked about uh, someone earlier on, but... Hans Holbein, the Renaissance yeah. painter who, who's known for painting Henry VIII, and I've seen it so many times. He's worked at the <laughs> National Portrait Gallery and just stand in front of it for hours. He's been a huge influence on the um, style of your photography and the way that you uh, stand your subjects and, and what they're back at, what the, what's behind them. Yeah, no, I think, I think Holbein was really an interesting painter because of his realism to painting, which isn't complete realism. To, it's not photorealism because there wasn't the mm. invention of, of photography. So, but realism was a thing. And the way that he can convey texture and everything, and also the way that his subject gaze was, I felt like that it was to be gazed upon in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And even when the subject like Henry VIII is looking back at you, you end up really looking more at his outfit than his face staring back at you, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in the way he used color, the way he was able to pop the subject. Like Sir Thomas More portrait is one of my all time favorite portraits of his. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then it was so great because the National Portrait Gallery hung my portrait of Thelma and Duro in the Tudor wing. Um, no way. It, yeah. It when was, was, there when from, was that? That was uh, last year. It was up for there for oh, about wow. six, seven months where all of a sudden oh, one of my God. portraits hung with the Holbeins and the Tudors at the oh, National wow. Portrait Gallery. And, and that Thelma just blew my mind. Yeah, it was with Thelma and Duro, yeah. 
love that. Yeah, that they have that portrait. Yeah, that you could always oh. call over and ask to see that portrait. But it was an incredible yeah, moment, true. like to be able to have that portrait of mine hang with those portraits was, I would say, one of the rare. And I didn't get to see it either. I never got to fly over to look at it because oh, it was no. just I was too busy, and then COVID happened. Yeah. yeah. What was the background you used for that then? Because what, what it black. seems like you've taken from Holbein, black, oh, it was black in the background. Because what it seems like yeah, you've taken was, Holbein is the plain, the poppy colours, like you've popped your, like you give your character, your portrait sitters a regal quality because they're against these bright poppy colours. Yeah, but it was black and lit in that way that, um, you know, Duro's clothing. So that's what popped yeah, was. Thelma what was popped. wearing a Duro cape and Duro himself in his outfit. And yeah, it's really, uh, it's a, it's a portrait that I'm incredibly proud of. And I, they hung it up before Harry married Meghan. And I think it was their nod to the changing of the Royal family. It was actually right, brilliant right, right. by Nick to do that. Wow. Wow. And another series of work of yours, which I find incredibly arresting and successful, and again is an iconic uh, suite, is Being and Having, which you made in 91, oh, which yeah. is uh, it's a series of portraits, very close up, which also reminds me of the Orange is the New Black credits. I don't know if you've thought of that. but Well, no, they, they, thought, they thought of my Being and Having series for sure, because Being and Having was also the credit series for the L Word. They used some of those portraits when the L Word first came out. Oh, oh really? In their beginning credit sequence. So I think definitely, uh, uh, I, I love that, uh, um, you know, I love the, yeah, so, but. I saw a series of masculinities at the Barbican, so I was able to stay. Yeah, and they're up there, I know, yeah. I know. And then touring. Up. I came out, I came out for that opening, actually. Oh, really? Um, it was, was really lovely. Right. It was one of my last traveling moments, actually, was coming out for that opening. And it was, it's really actually a pretty great show. Yeah, I really brilliant. like that show quite brilliant. a bit. Yeah. That's brilliant. But what it is, but, it's a series of eight eight portraits, isn't it? 14 total in there. Oh, wow. No, 13. 13. 13. 13. Yeah, and 13, they all I pick, think. Pick, picture yeah. members of your leather dyke community, which is you yeah. seem to be the cornerstone for, like the, the, the honorary leather, leather dyke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were all really groovy people that were my friends in L.A., and I gave them, like, money to go buy a mustache at the Hollywood wig shop if they didn't already own one. And uh -huh. then I just did them on that yellow background in my living room in Silver Lake because I didn't have a studio, so my living rooms were always my studios until I got a real studio. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was it was it was great. And actually, Mocha this uh, had artists make masks, and I used my face bow uh, for the mask, and it lines up perfectly. It's surprising, like it's like if I wear it, it's like my nose is my nose, and I have the mustache and the mouth over oh, my wow. own mouth. And oh, so people cool. have been buying that mask. So I get I've been getting massive images of people with half my face on as a mask right oh, now wow. from. And which That's is really cute. Really, I'll have Heather send you some images of people with it, but yeah, it's really, please. it turned out to be, I was just like, well, why can't I use my face as my mask? And I was like, I'll use Bo. And it turned out to work really well. Yeah. So Bo was the character that you gave your yeah, portrait. Yeah, Bo, Bo. Yeah, Bo. Bo's they all had, been they photographed. Had, Go ahead. 
Go no, they all had you. You gave them all names. Which there's one there called Pig Pen, another one called Steak. Are they in this series? Yeah, those are all their nicknames in real life for the most part. Like, except for Joni. Joni was oh so bad, and I love that she gave right. her name himself that name oh so bad. It's really funny, right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's and you know it's kind of like we were gangsters, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were like butch gangsters in a certain way and it was before drag was really being talked about a whole lot it certainly happened within our queen yeah. clubs you know the photographer del grace had definitely played with it i mean it was it was there within the community mm-hmm. but it wasn't something that had necessarily shifted over to the museum world yet you know? right, well, right what was it so like it was being a real club scene what was it like and i i do you still consider yourself the leather dyke what was that like to be part of <laughs> <laughs> that community in in like <laughs> around that time. Well, what what do they say? Once a leather dyke, always a leather dyke. Maybe even if oh, you're not they? a yeah. player anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah, once a player, always a story. player. That's funny. I certainly have stories of being a player, but I'm I'm definitely like you know I'm 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 I married a good a good Catholic girl. <laughs> Uh-huh. So. Did you and you met her at Catholic camp? Did you or no? I didn't, <laughs> no, 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 I didn't meet her. I, I stopped going to church camps to meet girls or woo girls. <laughs> but uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think you know. I, I after Oliver was born, I think I did want. I went up to see my best friend Idexa, who I did a lot of play with, and that she's been in my photographs as well over the years. As, mm-hmm. as Pigpen and Idexa probably show up more than anybody else throughout the bodies of work through the years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I did a scene and I like was in it and I kind of like enjoyed it. But at the same time, like I had this like cute little baby dyke riding a tricycle around with a gag in her mouth. And I was like, you know, kind of every once in a while when she rode past me, I lash her with a whip. And then I like have a two year old at home, and I was just like, "What the fuck am I doing?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it got a little too close to home. Taking Go care ahead. of a body of a child, and yeah. actually being part of being a top or anything like that, or even being a masochist either, was really hard for me to switch that mindset from mm. caring for this child to tell you the truth. Mm. I just kind of couldn't do it in the same way that I did. Mm. And uh, so maybe now he's at college, like I'll bring it back. I don't know. <laughs> what an amazing thing to have, like you said at the beginning about finding our logical family, that these you were able to find your own people that you have documented and you have like amplified their voices, but you were able to find these people where you felt comfortable enough to explore this side of the human psyche that a lot of people are scared to do or wary of. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think there's so many misconceptions. Like I've had people over the years say, well, why would you mutilate yourself in those self portraits? And Mm. I'd be like, well, it's actually not mutilation. I said, I decided, you know, critically, in in a conceptual way to decide to do a cutting on my body that represented a certain specific thing that I wanted to look at. And he would Mm -hmm. have to realize that the AIDS epidemic at this point is in full, like massive way where I have lost over half of my community of gay men in my life. Mm -hmm. And what is the substance of that? 
it's blood. And so if you think about it, but often like that's the question I get in the audience from people is they'll be like, well, why would you self mutilate? And I'd be like, actually, I don't think of it as self mutilation. It was a piece that I controlled completely. And I don't, you know, and I think it's a lot of misconceptions around the SM community because mm -hmm. my experience has always been the most amazing, consensual, uh, provocative conversation about body and pain and living in the society has come out of that community for me, you know, and I've learned so much yeah. from it and I'm so grateful for it. Mm. So yeah, once totally. a leather dyke, always a leather dyke. Leather dyke. <laughs> Well, we have, we have a, oh, sorry. We have a photo, like we talked about the triptych earlier on, about you know the cutting one and um, and the pervert one. That ten years later, there's a self-portrait, and it's nursing, and it's you yeah. breastfeeding your your son. Now we're talking about who's going to college, and you can still see faintly the scarring of pervert across your oh, yeah. chest. Is that still there or is that kind of yeah. faded away now? No, it's still there. It's still there and it's slightly raised because I'm keloid a little bit. So you can kind of run your hands over it and feel the traces of the scar. And uh, yeah, no, I, and it was really funny because there was a moment in time, like being a mom where like you wear a bathing suit and there's pervert on your chest and you have yeah. all of your friends, kids in the pool and they're all four years old and they're like, what's that on your chest? And I'm like, oh, it's a white ink tattoo because you don't tell four-year-olds it was a cutting. And yeah. then, then they're asking, what does it say? Because they can't read yet. And you're like, perfect. It says perfect. Does that feel weird, so, though, still having that there? Like look, looking at yourself now, it's part of your history. Do no, you see it as like just like tattoos. They're just, just a journey. It's history in the body. Yeah. The body becomes part of your history, just like your wrinkles and your laugh lines and everything else it's just a tracing of the history of your identity and who you are it's yeah i love that i love that so much and I, I i was thinking a lot about it recently you know in terms of plastic surgery and you know i'm turning 40 this year and um i keep seeing celebrities you know even younger than me who are like doing things to their faces and stuff and you're just like what are you doing people like because i i love the romance of kind of wrinkles and you know the idea oh, that it's the history the of your, your life so sexy. yeah all of this I love a thing. crow's feet. And also, yeah. I'm really into... You love a crow's feet. That is a quote. I do. I love, <laughs> I love a crow's feet. Crow's feet from laughing is just nothing more it's the beautiful it's than the someone's best. been no. laughing all their life and they've got the crow's feet by their eyes. I, I do also exactly. really, really love the idea, Kathy, of, of your body as kind of a material almost in the work and mm. this very clear decision. You know, you, you are in control of the photograph and of your body and, you know, and it, it, it's not mutilated like you say and I, I i find that very inspiring actually it's a it's a great yeah thing. i think it's interesting how many people misunderstand it. it's interesting that you brought up plastic surgery because that's often what i'll say in the audience is that you you know i said all, some of you are really squirming around in your seat over these images but you wouldn't think anything about it in relationship to plastic surgery no. you know mm, and so mm. because it becomes language it's making you uncomfortable. Um, so I think it's just so interesting the way that we, you know, again, deal with things as people and how we see things. It's like, wow, that's really upsetting for you. I had a response one time at the Whitney Museum 
of American art where somebody reminded me of this. I was having a conversation on stage with Adam, and this is probably about four or five years ago, and Adam, the director of the Whitney, and um, I think the image pervert came up, and one of the audience members had such a visceral reaction to it that they threw up. Whoa. And it was like, wow, like what, what and, and then you have to ask <laughs> yeah. yourself, what are, what is, what are their processes as a person? Like what, how yeah. were they taught? What are they thinking? Yeah. What is their relationship to kind of the fact that the, you know, I mean, many people have cuts on their body and um, yeah. that they have from an accident or a scar and, it's just a part of something that happened, but to control mm-hmm. something in relationship to a language is, is, you know, you have control over it. It's a very different thing than I'm the biggest baby in the world. When I stub my toe, I'll cry. But if I have control <laughs> over it, no, I'm not going to cry. Yeah. Did you cry Maybe when it was happening? Out of you. No, but there was a moment where like I moaned a lot when pervert was happening. Pervert was harder than self portrait cutting on my back. And I have a videotape of it actually being done. And mm-hmm. I had really good concentration through it until my friend Raylan Galena, who's an amazing body piercer and, you know, did a lot of scarification and knew exactly the depth and how to do it. And that's why I asked her to do it. But there was a moment where she decided to pop a pimple on my chest and we were playing around and we were laughing, you know, and I'm sitting in a chair and, you know, I have needles in my arm and because we did the needles first and, you know, a lot is Whoa. happening to my body and she, mm. you know, and then so I, I lose concentration and I start laughing. And then when she went back in to begin to finish the cutting, I was like, oh, shit, 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 shit. And I had to grab somebody's hand and squeeze it and get back to a place of, like, being able to breathe because I got out of that yeah. level of concentration as we were laughing. Or well, meditation, so, sort of, I guess. Yeah, a it's a meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see it as performance wow. art? We, we interviewed an artist called Kembra Farler who uh, sewed her vagina together as part mm. of performance art. Do you, do you know that work? Yeah, I don't know her work, but obviously I performed with Ron Athey for years, so I know I know his work really well. But I haven't seen her work, but I'll have to look it up. What's her name again? Kembra P-F-A-H-L-E-R. She's amazing. She, she, she grew up in California, okay. actually. Yeah. Um, she's based in New York since the 80s. Okay, I'll have to check her yeah. out. Yeah, she's but it's, amazing. It's yeah, I like, haven't seen her do work. Do you see, your, when, when you did the Max as well, was that like performance art? You said you videoed it. Is that something you would show as? Well, with per, cutting the cutting on my back was a very small group of people with the two stick figure girls. It was my good friend, the painter, Judy Bamber, did the cutting. My yeah. friends, Mike and Skye, who um, were there to help her because she had never done a cutting. And I didn't want somebody in my community who knew how to do a cutting to do it because I wanted it to be apprehensive as a cutting. I didn't mm-hmm. want it to be perfect um, because family is never perfect. So I wanted that to be translated in the way that it was actually cut into my back. And uh, and then my good friend Connie Samaris was there to help operate the four by five camera by putting the dark slides in and take them out because I couldn't operate the camera and also like have the cutting being done. And that was small, but when I did Pervert, it was done in a studio in San Francisco, and I would go up to San Francisco in the summers and set up a portrait studio, and um, 
And that was done there. And I think I had about 12 people there and somebody videotaping it. So it did feel more performative than the other ones. Right, right, right. Wow. Amazing. Have you, have you always um, like enjoyed the, the, like the complications of sexual identity and, and the complications of gender that your work tracks? Is, is, have you enjoyed it? Has it been like a um, cathartic making the work and an, uh, an enjoyable thing or has it been something that's kind of troubled you that you found your way into navigating through? Mm, I love that question. And I've never been asked that question before. And it just like triggers all these receptors off of my brain because I think it's, mm -hmm. it's a conflicting relationship. It's a mm. conflicting relationship within my own body. You know, I was like, you know, born in 1961 to, uh, you know, a nuclear family that had its own like weird issues and, um, of, and and it's so interesting because even though my mom was more like a tomboy and an athlete and she didn't present femininity in the way we think of femininity, I think I was allowed to be a tomboy in a different way because she was a tomboy, even though she was, you know, um, married to my dad and doing a nuclear family thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that... Um, it was always really, really troubling to me that I couldn't be accepted to who, to who I was becoming or who I was as a person and that I had to stay hidden and I had to, you know, pretend that I liked boys or do this kind of performative thing around heterosexuality and what the norm was. Like that's a whole mm. performance on its own. Mm. And so to begin to be out and photograph my own community and to allow that to enter my work was a really, really hard decision for me because yeah. I had dreams of being a teacher and I got my master's degree specifically to be a teacher. And um, I thought that by making self-portrait cutting on my back and pervert and all this various work, um, that was really motivated because of the incredible homophobia in relationship to the AIDS epidemic and becoming an activist. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that um, I was just screwing myself. And so it was always a really conflicting thing to make the work, but I knew that you just had to follow what you were meant to do, that you should always follow the visions that are in your mind as an artist. And if you don't, then, you know, you're talking yourself out of something that could be potentially really good for you. And it ended up being all very good for me in terms of my career. But I, I certainly think that it's taken different tolls in different ways, especially in terms of how people assume you might be as a person because mm -hmm. of your work. Mm -hmm. And so there's all of those assumptions that happen, you know, with, with that as well. And I'm actually much uh, more humorous and, uh, and different than my work. And I think that people always are taken aback by that. They're like, Oh my God, she has a sense of humor. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so I you've think always, that, you know, you've always felt ahead of your time. Your work has always felt yeah, very ahead of its time at every mm -hmm. step, especially yeah. with, especially with covering identity and, and uh, the other and gender mm -hmm. and queer ID and fluidity and our community and how our identities are shaped by our architecture and how the communities are shaped. And 
you know, I, I, that's, I find you inspiring on that level. I yeah, just think too. it's incredible. I've always oh, found thank that you. That's so kind of you. The empathy is so strong in it. Mm. Like I always feel like I'm there with you, you know, as oh. both the, the photographer, but also you can sort of imagine yourself in the people you're photographing, even if we're Well, you want to be friends with them. You want to hang out I mean? with like, them. You want yeah, to go drinking yeah, with yeah. them. That's what I want to do with all your leather dyke mates. I want to go out on the <laughs> night out. And actually, even the, even the show <laughs> I saw, at, even that show I saw at Mocha that I mentioned in the intro, yes. which was of um, Elizabeth Taylor's house and all of her closets and her clothes and all yeah. the kind of... Uh, all the things that come with a life of fame and wealth and being an icon really but it just became so I don't know there's such an empathy in those images and well it's it's human it humanizes her yeah totally yeah she's no longer a celebrity celebrity, but a real person yes a real person and I think that we all forget that and it's so interesting celebrity culture like what was it announced the other day that the Kardashians are not going to go on and it's like people are super. That was today. People are mm. super. Yeah, super, people are super upset about that. I'm just like, mm-hmm. yeah. Don't you think yeah. maybe it might be healthier for their children not to be in front of the camera all the time? Yeah. Like, don't you think that might be a little bit better for them? Mm-hmm. It's it's just uh, what we put into uh, celebrity culture and the notion of that being then that specificity of identity of that person because that's how we identify them is such a fallacy and it's such a shame because we all need to to realize that there is you know like i would even like to be empathetic to trump at this point like just say like oh god the poor guy like he must have been really fucked up as a kid to be this messed up as a person (laughs) you know but it's hard it's hard when somebody's doing such damage um yes to find I, empathy, I but I think I think yeah. we need to. I think we need to work on that all. I think that mm. uh, social media has been fantastic on some levels, but it's also mm. allowed for this vitriol um, uh, that is uh, that is insidious and it's 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 highly problematic to all of us as mm. in, in in pushing humanity forward. Mm. We we have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Mm. This is Elizabeth Taylor works that we were talking about. Then you, she was actually there for a lot of it in hiding from you while you were photographing her house. And then you'd be talking about you being ahead of ahead of its time. She actually died while you were doing the photography documentation, right? Mm. Yeah. No, I've had that happen numerous times. I mean, I was photographing. (laughs) People are like, no, you're not going to photograph me. If you could, I'll end up begging (laughs) it. Don't get Kathy in. No, no. Well, that was the joke when I was doing lesbian domestic as I was kind of idealizing after the cutting of my back, making lesbian domestic, I was idealizing these couples that had 12 year relationships. And I was like, why can't I have a 12 year relationship? Mm. Um, and and then I would photograph them, and then months later they would break up, and this happened three times in a row. So all my friends were, were like, don't let, Kathy, yeah. "Don't let Kathy photograph you. It's like the death of your relationship." <laughs> one of those, um, but, uh, one of those but yeah, she was in the house. I never met her, but she was there. She peeked at me once from behind a curtain. Um, I always anticipated that I would meet with her and show her what I made. Yeah. And then she would uh, give me a thumbs up or push me out her front door. And, uh, but, you know, she personally gave her permission and looked at all my work to do this. And so that was, mm. that was really amazing. It's, it's, uh, I, I think, I think again for her, 
insight as also being a very complicated person to mm. allow like somebody who's not a celebrity photographer or an architectural digest to come in shows that mm. she was also really trying to, you know, even in herself show a human side that it was different than mm. what was portrayed throughout her life as a celebrity. Was that something she asked you to concentrate on some Christmas decorations at one point? Yeah, she did. Yeah. She really liked the big silver ball, the oversized one. And that's one of the beginning images in the book as well. And in the portfolio. Did you guys get to see it when it was up at the Tate? No, they Rob hung the whole saw it in, in Los LA. Angeles. No, yeah. I saw it in LA, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, they hung the whole, it was up last year for months at the Tate. They bought the portfolio and hung it. Um, Amazing. And again, I didn't get to see that, both that and the National Portrait Gallery, I wasn't able to come over to London to see, you know, um, but... Yeah. There's an image in that in that series um, which says her name, and it's almost like embroidered or something, perhaps on a yeah, it's one of her of dressing gown. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually on a chair for the mo- uh, movie set, and I tried to get Tim, her assistant, to tell me what movie it was, and it was either Giant or something else, and I I forget if he act- he said maybe it's Giant, but I don't know, and I don't I forget mm. if he ever told me what movie it was. Uh, for, but it was it was great because it became like this title like a movie title in a certain way that this Tiny chair was sitting there with red leather mm-hmm. and it was kind of folded so you it was like you know it had a movement to it and it just remind me of when the curtains move into a in the theater and they display the credits you know it just had that feeling and I just was like okay this is really a good opening image for me, I love the impression as well. And it is because it's leather. Now that I know it's leather, I can see that in my mind. But like, to me, it was almost like, like you're saying, like velvet curtains, which has a kind yeah. of association anyway with theatrical and cinema and that, that myth, you know, around her. But it's mm. also that idea of the kind of creases in it. It's almost becomes like wrinkles in skin or something. You know, yeah. it's, it's got this, oh, it's such a great piece. And that was the piece oh, that when nice. I left the museum that I remember being in the car park and we bumped into Helen Molesworth. And mm. I remember I had that, like imprinted in my brain and it was like all I could think about it's the strangest strangest thing and it wasn't Mm. even like one of the kind of figurative images in the sense of you know like the rooms or the jewelry or even the Andy Warhol or all of that all of those things but it was really stuck with me Um, yeah I love I I like the pictures I love from it that are still like this great moment that happened is when her cat Fang walks across the Chanel shoes it's like all the same Chanel shoes, but in different colors. And then all of a sudden yeah. the household cat gets up to walk through the image. And it's just like, oh my God, this is so, and again, it just makes it more human. It's like, yeah. this is not a shoe ad for Chanel. This is somebody's yeah. house who has all of the different colors of those shoes and a cat named Fang. So it just, yeah. it becomes a really different thing. Yeah. The Amazing. cat was called Fame. Fang. F-A-N-G. Oh, Fang. Oh, Fang. Yeah, Fang. Wow, wow, wow. Cool. Amazing. Yeah, I like that cat. I was like, can I have the cat? They were like, no, you can't have the cat. (laughs) It sounds like it's got an expensive taste for all them Chanel shoes. So we we ask every guest that comes on um, some uh, questions. And well, obviously we've asked you loads of questions today. But two questions (laughs) we ask on every episode is, the first one is, if you could do uh, an imaginary art heist and you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, could be a building, could be another photographer's work, could be be a a pair of Chanel shoes from Liz Patella's house, what would that be? And why? 
Oh boy. There's so many great pieces, mm-hmm. but I will have to go with, um, God, there's two that I, can I have two or only yes, one? Yes, yeah, you can because yeah, you're Kathy Opie. We will let yes. you. Okay. Okay. So, so, so the, <laughs> if I was only to have one, I would probably take Picasso's portrait of Gertrude Stein. Yes. Ah. At the Met, isn't it? Is that the Met? Uh, yeah, it's at the Met. And yeah. uh, if I couldn't, ha- and then and then if I got to steal a second piece, it would be uh, Alice Neal's uh, portrait of Warhol. After yes. he's been shot with the scars. I love that. Yes. yes. That painting is moment, just mind-blowing. It's a mind-blowing painting. Yeah. Incredible painting. So those are my two art heists that I would take with me to my desert island to live on. Wow. <laughs> I like the Gertrude Stein because there's something about Gertrude Stein that she's quite, she's very butch in that in the image that Super Picasso has done of her, sure. there, which really yeah. relates to your work. I can see a lot of the, the character of Gertrude going through the portraits, a lot of your sitters. Yeah, no, the body positioning in that in the chair is just like, and yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal portrait. It really is. Yeah. I always thought of the face as well in that work. It's almost like it's kind of masked. It's pre-cubist, like kind of... isn't it? It's just before you... Well, you know, he really does... The clothing has more form to it, and then yes. the the cubism comes up in the face of of Gertrude Stein, and it was yeah. it is yeah you're right it's a very interesting gesture. I think it kind of made yeah. me think of death masks and things like that. You know, do you know what I mean? Like those yeah. kind of, like casts or something. It's got a mm-hmm. the the other the other question we ask every guest is what is your favorite color? Mm, that's easy, blue. And why blue? And why? <laughs> Oh, blue just is the water and the sky. It's like, it's the place that you can float and especially the blue of dusk. Like if I could just have like dusk uh, wrap me up like a, uh, in a, in a, you know, in a, I could be swaddled in dusk. Uh, that would make me very happy because there's just something about that moment as the, when the, after the sun goes down and you get that deep, deep blue that there's no other blue like that. And it can't, I've, I've tried to represent it within landscapes and I've gotten close one time on this Lake Erie photograph where it's snowy and you see the footprints of an animal. I'll have Heather send you a copy of it. And, and it's, uh, I grew up on Lake Erie in Ohio. And so I did this whole body of work for the Cleveland Clinic of the lake at different seasons. But it's that wintry dusk that the snow turns blue, the sky is blue. And it just like, ah, oh, there's something about that blue. Wow. Wow. One, one more question. Will you just tell us a little bit about what Club Fuck was like? Because just <laughs> so exciting. It was the best. <laughs> It was the best until the rest of LA discovered us and they decided to end up watching us like we were like a little freak show for their entertainment. Um, But before that, when it was just ours and it was pure queer space, there was nothing like it. The performances that would happen, the music that would be laid like what? Down. Like what performances? Like what performances? Oh, everybody performed there. I mean, you know, Divinity Fudge would do something. You know, Daryl, like Ron Athey performed, Crystal Cross. Like we would do, there would be live uh, stage performances of, of like basically, you know, Club SM stuff. And so, you know, uh, there was poetry read sometimes. 
Um, it was, it was just this really kind of amazing, uh, queer, queer scene of visibility. And it was sweaty, sweaty bodies and, you know, a lot of collars with locks on with people being led by leashes and a lot of latex and a lot of leather. And, uh, there was a pool table in the space as well for a moment in time. And uh, it's funny, I didn't take a lot of pictures there. I have one night of bad snapshots. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was really special. My friend Sweet Pea, you know, ran the front door and James and Miguel uh, started it. And they're both no longer with us. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Brooks also DJed there. And uh, then after fuck, they started the club on Santa Monica Boulevard cinematic, which was much more club like in terms of dancing, where I felt Mm -hmm. like club fuck was more of a space of expression and dancing. Wow. I want to, I wish I could have gone there. I would have led Rob. I would have led Rob around on the leash <laughs> the whole night and oh hit him, God, hit him constantly. I would have done, you loved it. Wish. Well, it's like Gail, Gail. Gail Rubin has a great story from the San Francisco leather days. Right, she's one of the great historians of uh, gay male leather bar uh, life of of San Francisco. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, Gail uh, once was at a club with uh, Foucault and Foucault had a little, you know, baby slave on the end of a leash and was leading him around. And uh, Gail, Gail turned to the slave and said, uh, so you know who's leading you around, don't you? And uh, she's like, yeah, he's really cute, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, and then, you know, and then Foucault goes and figures out the history of sex, sex, the history through going out to the desert and tripping his brains out. So thank goodness for that. Wow. Wow. Well, this has been an amazing chat, Kathy. Oh. Thank you so much for giving us oh, your time. Oh, thank you, so, thank you. I so really, really brilliant. enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm yeah. glad it worked out. So, yeah. yeah. What's next yeah. for you? Where can we see your work next? I think Masculinities is touring to Denmark. I might have got that wrong with the yeah. Barbican show, and then you have um, work coming up uh, soon elsewhere. Do you have plans? I know it's like a weird time to be planning shows, but. No, I'm going to, I'm going to edit, I'm going to edit what I have and I'm going to see if somehow rhetorical landscapes can be expanded upon with the other work that I've just made for a potential museum show somewhere. Like Mm -hmm. I love, I love what I made for the exhibition rhetorical landscapes, but I also feel like the landscapes that I just went on to bear witness to could Mm -hmm. feed into swamps and the animated collages somehow. Yes. So if not, maybe there are separate rooms, you know, that you kind of enter, but I'm going to start playing around with that idea because I feel like the modernist rhetorical landscapes and what I'm making now all have a voice with one another. Um, but uh, there's show there, the, the, the collages are going to go to the Moody in Houston and be shown throughout up into the election. And then I right. did a piece called, um, 
political marches that'll be shown on the outside of the University of Berkeley's uh, outside screen. And uh, every march that I photograph, I stand in the middle and I just photograph as the marchers pass me uh, face on. So I did a sequence from basically an anti-war march to a um, immigration march to, uh, um, to the women's march to Black Lives Matter march. I sequenced those four different marches into a slideshow where people are moving past you on the screen. Wow. And so that'll wow. be up at Berkeley. And so wow. other than that, I'm going to take off in the RV again in October and go up and photograph Portland and uh, okay. up into Seattle to look at what that site of city of over 100 days of protests looks like and do a little bearing witness to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. So that's Amazing. what I'm up to. Great. Amazing. We love you, well, Kathy. Kathy Opie, thank you so yeah. much for joining us. This has been, honestly, I've, that was just transformative for me. I absolutely mm. loved every minute of listening to you speaking. Thank you. Uh, thank thank you. you so much. Thanks for inviting yeah. me. And, and uh, yeah. when I get over there, I hope we can all have a drink together. Oh, we yes, that. We'd love that. Also, we can I want to get back again. to L.A. Yeah. yeah, of course. Exactly. Or when and, you get um, back to LA, give me a call. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And um, for Im- images of all artworks we've discussed in today's episode, you can visit our Instagram at TalkArt. Kathy, are you on Instagram? I can't remember. I'm a really bad Instagram person. I'm trying to be better. I feel like we sent you a direct message on there once. I think after I met Rodney, maybe. Um, did I even yeah. respond? I doubt it. No, I don't no, think you did. No. I think, I think <laughs> we ended up you finding you another way. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was furious. I was like, everyone's saying yeah. she's lovely. She's it's not. Really she's really ignoring really me. Really <laughs> really oh, that's so that way. I haven't figured out how to do it. I, yeah, well, to be honest, it sounds like you're very busy with the, yeah. it's just, making you know, your photos. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me to do it. I, I want to. I want to participate. And every once yeah. in a while I try to, but... You're analog. Yes. You said you well, think you're, like you're gonna analog. You're going to be all over yeah. our Instagram very soon. Yes. So yeah. Yes. Loving, loving. But, I, but I, I'm, I'm CSOP on Instagram. So C S S as in Sue O P I E. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's Perfect. I'm on Instagram. But I'm not Wonderful. On <laughs> oh. Well, we'll be the judge <laughs> of that, Kathy. I'll yeah. try to be better. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, thank you so, so much. It's been brilliant. Absolutely. uh, See you, everyone. See you next time. Very soon. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.